1: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com.
2: And Overnight America continues with now a guest for this half hour. I'm pretty excited to speak to New York Times bestselling author, about his new book, uh, The Beirut Protocol, and some of the things that are going on in the Middle East. Joel C. Rosenberg, thank you for coming on to KMOX. Uh,
3: Great to be with
2: you and shalom from Jerusalem. I was going to say bright and early for you, so it's what, five in the morning in (laughs) Jerusalem right now? Yeah,
3: that's right. I'm living sort of a nocturnal life right now because I'm supposed to be doing a book tour for the Beirut Protocol in the United States, still virtual, admittedly, but at least I'd be in an American time zone. (laughs) <laughs> but um, the airport here is closed uh, to almost all traffic uh, because of COVID. So I'm here doing a virtual book tour from Jerusalem in my home here. and uh, But it's great to be with you and, and KMUX audience. It's, uh, it's an
2: honor. Oh, that's cool. And just to keep up with the book tour, that's something I think a lot of people don't realize that when you put a book out, the ability to get the word out there is a huge deal. So you find yourself doing a lot of different interviews, TV, radio, things like that. So your book is the Beirut Protocol. You're a New York Times bestseller. And I'm looking at some of the events that are going on in the Middle East right now. And since you're you know right there and you get to see it firsthand, I'm curious, uh, how much time do you spend in Israel? And really, what is the feel right now, how things are going there?
3: Sure. Well, uh, well, we're, we're, we are now dual citizens for almost seven years. Um, my wife and sons and I. Uh, we have four sons, two of which have served in the Israeli military. Uh, one actually served up on the on the uh, Lebanon border, uh, and that's what this novel is all about: uh, the, the, the the an eruption of a major war in the Middle East because of a terror attack on the Israeli Lebanon border. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got another son who's just finishing up this month uh, in a special forces unit here in Israel. So, so we spend most of our time here, unless we're you know traveling uh, for business or pleasure or back to the states to see family and friends. Uh, but it is it, it is both a fascinating place to live, but uh, because of all the biblical history and all, of course all the modern history. Um, but it's also a great place to live if you're a thriller writer. Because, you know, the the threat of radical Islamism and other threats in this region are the gifts that keep on giving. Now, we wish they, they, you know, they, you know, we wish we'd fall, we would have peace and uh, never have to worry. But uh, some of the worst dangers in the world, not just to Israel, but to our Arab neighbors and to the United States and to the Western Alliance, uh, come out of this region. And um, so I've been writing books about the threat of uh, radical Islamism and other terror threats here in the Middle East uh, for only 20 years, and um, I haven't run out of of ideas, I'll tell you that much.
2: Yeah, you'll have to explain this, because I don't know this for sure, but in Israel, are all teens required to serve in the military?
3: Uh, Technically, you you would think that, yes, uh, but we don't actually have the budget to put every Eighteen-year-old into the army. So, if you've got young people that are like throwing a a hissy fit, they don't want to do it, or or you have people um, ultra-orthodox religious people don't want to. They just they want to study the Bible. They don't want to. They don't uh, want to serve. That's a big tension in the society. But the truth is, there just isn't the money to put everybody into the army, um, even though that is the law. But they, but you know, there's so much. Money has to go into missile defenses or into you know F thirty five stealth fighter jets in case we have to attack Iran or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's a tension, but uh, but I'm I'm proud of my sons for serving. Uh, the oldest is married, so he didn't start, have to serve, and the youngest is still in high school. So that's mm-hmm. where we are. And me, I, I you know I I've told the kids, look, when we moved to Israel, uh, I'm too old, too fat, too blind, too flat footed. You know the IDF will only really draft me if they need a hostage.
2: <laughs> well I want to talk about the dual citizenship because I'm sure you follow a lot of American politics too, so we have a new president, of course, and Joe Biden, and the way that they handled Iran made it a little bit uncertain of how that Middle East peace deal and some of the other countries that were starting to talk to each other were starting to find this path to peace, places that you never would have imagined we're talking about peace. And then things switch over. We start to have a different tone here in the United States when it comes to how they handle Iran. Do we pay them off? Do we play hardball? What do we do? And for you, someone that lives there and sees this from day to day, does that make you nervous? Or uh, do you have any other feelings about what's going on today?
4: Well, look,
3: you know, I want to be optimistic about President Biden and his team. I, I want to believe that they have learned their lessons from the first insane nuclear deal that they negotiated with Iran under President um, you know Barack Obama and, and then Vice President Joe Biden's term, uh, the new CIA director and the current uh, national security advisor. These are the men that did the back-channel deal, and it, it was a really disastrous deal, and it has had very bad implications uh, for the United States, but also for Israel and the Arab uh Nations in this region, but it, you know, I didn't. I don't want to assume that they haven't seen how the, how badly it's gone. How much Iran has cheated. How Iran took the 150 billion dollars that the United States gave them, and and they funded uh, terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and Hamas. And the, the region, uh, you know, continues to see Iran be hostile. So. Just because they made a deal that was bad, you know, six, seven years ago doesn't mean they'll make another bad deal, but it's not looking good right now. And I think everybody (laughs) here in the Middle East is nervous because Iran is breaking the deal so fast. And yes, President Trump pulled out of the deal, but the rest of Europe and the Russians and the Chinese, they they still believe in the deal. And Iran is cheating and they're not Mm. just cheating at the margins. They they are they're, they're not supposed to enrich uranium past 3.5 percent purity, but they are already up to 20 percent. And this and, and and I know that doesn't mean much to person who's not a nuclear scientist, but but the point is um, they um, they are they have blown past all the all the rules of the deal, which is still in force with all the countries that signed it except for the United States. So. In, in In addition, the Iranians are capturing uh South Korean oil tankers and attacking israeli uh ships and uh and again funding terrorist organizations so th- this there's no evidence that they suddenly said, "You know what that's so nice of the Americans and the international community to make a deal with us and give us all this cash. You know what We do want to become a civilized you know." <laughs> uh government it's not the people of iran that's the problem it's the regime and and it's sheer evil and it was it was understandable that they were going to cheat that's what we all said who are against it this is what prime minister netanyahu of israel said in congress when he, he warned he came to a joint session of congress i was there in the room and he warned this is a deal that paves the way for iran to get an entire arsenal Mm-hmm. of nuclear weapons and fund terror all throughout and subversion all throughout the region. And President Obama and Vice President Biden did not listen. So I want to get, them course, correct. But at the moment, it's not looking good.
2: So your book, uh, The Beirut Protocol, people can find online by best-selling author Joel C. Rosenberg, who joins us here live from Israel and talking about the Middle East and maybe after the break, I, I keep seeing these different reviews and things. And I, I wanted to ask you, when you wrote the book, some of the things you wrote about. And people say you have this uncanny ability. The things that you write about seem to be pretty close and on track to things that actually happen. So I'm, I'm curious your process in writing. Maybe <laughs> we can talk about that after the break. Sure. Happy to do it. Oh, uh, the, the Beirut Protocol, if people wanted to find that online, what's the best place to go?
3: Yeah, uh, well, any any bookstore, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, any place where you like to buy books, independent bookstores, if you want to learn more about it, you can certainly go to my website, joelrosenberg.com. It's got all the details, and it's got links to all kinds of other places that are selling it. But yeah, the Beirut Protocol just came out on Tuesday in hardcover, but it's also out in ebook editions, Kindle, mm. Nook, other versions. And it's an audio, so you don't even have yeah. to read it. You can, you can have a great narrator just read it to you off your phone uh, while you're going for a run or driving to the market or whatever. Um, yeah, any one of those formats it's available in.
2: Great, and we'll talk more with Joel Rosenberg, the author of the Beirut Protocol, coming up after the break on Overnight America KMOX Radio's BS Detector,
1: Mark Reardon, weekday afternoons at two on St. Louis's News Radio KMOX
2: joining us is a new york times bestseller joel c rosenberg and his book the beirut protocol coming out this week which you can go find online if you do a search for the beirut protocol live from israel where it's uh, what five nineteen a.m you woke up early for this thank you again for joining us here on kmox
3: happy to be with you and actually i've been up all night uh i I'm, like i guess i'm i'm living no- nocturnally because I'm doing all these uh, interviews in the States uh, and Zoom book events at bookstores and libraries. So basically, I sleep all day right now and I'm up all <laughs> night doing these. I've done, I'm literally from moment to moment. So happy to do it. Yeah. And especially on a station that's a, a blowtorch, a powerhouse in the Midwest. So that's pretty cool.
2: Oh, wonderful. What do you know about KMOX? How are you familiar with us?
3: Well, I was Rush Limbaugh's research director in the nineteen nineties, and no. uh, and obviously <laughs> Rush, coming from Cape Girardeau, at Camelot was the station, right? So uh, of
2: course, uh, yeah.
3: So I remember him talking about it uh, all the time, and uh, uh, I don't recall if I've ever been interviewed on it, but it's an honor to be so today, especially well, as uh, for me, you know, I, Rush was a friend for twenty five years, had me on his show. As a former staffer, as you recall, he would have like the president of the United States on and the Speaker of the House, Mr. Newt, he used to call Ingrich. But he didn't have ex staffers on his on his show. But he <laughs> got excited when I started writing novels, and he was like Rosenberg. I didn't know what you could write. I'm like, well, Rush, you know, I did not write for you for <laughs> ghostwriting and and, and you know, newsletter, I wrote for you. He was, yeah, but you, I didn't know you could write fiction. I didn't have the heart to tell him. All my lipple friends thought I was writing fiction when I worked for us. But anyway, uh, but he he turned literally my first novel, the Last Shihad, into a monster bestseller. Eleven weeks on the New York Times list, uh, number one on Amazon. Nobody had ever even heard of me. But he mm-hmm. loved that book. He had me on, and boom, it just it just uh, erupted. And
0: uh, and he didn't have
3: he didn't have me on every single time, but um, but he actually called. he emailed me last year when he just got his diagnosis and he knew I was coming for a book tour and he invited me to come see him uh, in Palm Mm -hmm. beach. And I went down and it turned out that particular week, I just basically camped out in the hotel because every day he would email me apologizing. I can't do it today. I'm not doing well today. And Mm -hmm. the week went by and I then because of COVID had to rush back to Israel because they were closing the borders, closing the airports,
0: and I never got to see him again.
3: But uh, we did stay in close touch. And uh, and he was a KMOX guy from the beginning. Yeah.
2: yeah, no kidding. I think it's so great that you knew that. That means he was pretty vocal. In fact, with Rush Limbaugh, I was listening back to some of his interviews. And I was listening to an interview he gave um, where someone posted it and said, here's the interview we had when they signed on with our station. And he even mentioned oh, wow. KMOX on another radio station. It, it just goes to show you his love for the area. And of course he loved Jack Buck, uh, just had such great admiration for his broadcasting abilities. And uh, he would always talk about him. And even when he, talked about him after the radio hall of fame speech we still play that every once in a while it was such a good moment where he was talking about his love of radio and the thing i always really admired about rush limbaugh is that he always stood up for radio he was a radio first kind of guy and i just i oh, love well, that about him i
3: mean am radio it was dying in the in the late 1980s and I mean, he almost single-handedly uh, resurrected the entire medium and the funny thing is he he didn't start out on the show, on, the, on KMOX, did he? I can't, Now I'm forgetting because I think of him as a Pittsburgh guy, but for the life of yeah. me, I can't remember the station in Pittsburgh, but I remember KMO, KMOX.
2: Yeah, so let me give you what I've heard, and I've pieced this together from a couple of different people. So, of course, he went to work for the Royals for a while, and he actually right. applied to work here at KMOX while he was working for the Royals, and he was... Uh, not given a job here. And from what I remember, his application was hanging radio, up. <laughs> yeah. His application with the handwritten notes of Robert Highland were hanging up here at the radio station for a while. Thank oh had, gosh. Could you imagine how would, that would have changed the trajectory of uh, oh, talk sorry. radio and everything else? But uh, eventually, you know, he did work for other places. I think his dad actually owned a radio yeah. station. So that's how he got his foot in, in understanding of radio. But if he listened, I'm sure, to a lot of KMOX broadcasts because he loved it so much. Uh, yeah, he did work at a music station in Pittsburgh. His first talk job was in Sacramento until he moved to right, New York right. for WABC. But there was a story here from a newscaster named Bob Hamilton who told me that there was a weekend where Rush Limbaugh filled in and did some shows on KMOX. And the oh, general good. manager, Robert Highland, was going to offer him a job. However, this is right around the time he signed on with WABC, and it was too late at that point. And that could have changed things over Well, that's I over connected again. with him at,
3: yeah, at WABC. I mean, he was national already. But, um, but, and I was based in Washington and I got hired, uh, to be his research director based in Washington, but he was working at, at that time, still out of the WAPC studios at the uh, two Penn Plaza right above Madison square garden. And I, mm-hmm. uh, once a month I would take a train up I mean, I talk to him all the time, but I, I once a month I would come up for a, a day of, of meetings and strategy and, you know, planning and all kind of stuff for the, for the month ahead. And, and, uh. Yeah, that was the golden EIB microphone. And then eventually, of course, he moved to Palm Beach. But mm-hmm. but he was, of course, a, a legend in radio. But he was so kind to me personally, and he he wouldn't have just been nice if he didn't like these novels. It wouldn't have mattered how nice he was. He didn't. He wasn't <laughs> planning. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't doing charity. Let's put it that way. He did charity mm-hmm. for other things, but not for staff. Like you either had a great novel, and he loved it. Or you know he just he didn't feel like it was his responsibility to try to help everybody's career. So the fact that he even bothered to read it, much less mm-hmm. love it, and and so many of them, um, it, it just it just touched me. And uh, yeah, he, yeah, I know I'm he honest. loved
2: this he loved the area i know that he traveled once in a while like once in a while you'd hear him do a show from los angeles i guess he had a special studio there but for the most part it was rare but there was that time he came to missouri here after the tornadoes hit joplin and he went and did broadcasts to try to help and fundraise in that area to show you that you know his missouri roots he really loved the area and even after the fact just a couple of weeks ago he was laid to rest here in st louis at the uh, yeah. one of the cemeteries here so he definitely had a, a great love of this area and of radio. And I got to say, I, I, it's kind of fun to talk radio with you. I didn't realize your background history <laughs> with that radio program. Um, but just yeah. real quick to make sure we, we get this out there, the Beirut protocol, just talk about the book and kind of what's in it and who would like this book.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, it's a political thriller. <laughs> That's why Rush liked them. Um, and it, it is, uh, it, this one, the Beirut protocol is about, um, The United States trying to help broker uh, the mother of all peace deals in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but the United States is also worried that Iran and Iran's terror proxy forces are going to try to blow up the peace process, and that sure enough is exactly what happens. Um, Marcus Riker is the hero of the book. He's a former Marine. He's a former U.S. Secret Service agent. Now he's working for the Central Intelligence Agency, and he's doing an advanced trip up on the Israeli-Lebanon border to get ready for the coming of the Secretary of State, who wants to assess the threat on that border. And a big firefight opens up in Chapter 1 of the Beirut Protocol. Uh, Mm -hmm. Marcus and two of his colleagues are captured by the most bloodthirsty enemy on the planet, uh, Hezbollah, and they are pulled into a terror tunnel. And while they're pulled underground, deep behind enemy lines, a massive missile war erupts on the surface, and this peace treaty uh, is, is in danger, and the United States risks suddenly being pulled back into yet another Middle mm. East war that we don't want to be in. And the question is, well, how does Marcus Riker handle it? He's one of the most impressive operatives in the United States government, but suddenly, all of his skill sets have been knocked out. He's being held hostage, being tortured. Now it happens. That's that's just chapter one of the Beirut Protocol.
2: <laughs> People can find you online. You said your website joelrosenberg.com.
3: Correct, and you can find it um, also on Facebook and on Twitter and so forth.
2: Perfect, and they can search for your book, The Beirut Protocol. You can get a hard copy. Yeah, you can Amazon, get the audiobook.
3: Barnes Noble, anywhere you like books. Uh, yeah, it's it's hardcover. It's e-book and it's audio, so you can download it right to your phone if you want.
2: Oh, that was fun talking radio and Rush Limbaugh. That was really nice. I'm glad we got to do that tonight. And for you, morning, get to do that in the morning. Uh, So thank you so much, Joel Rosenberg. You can find his book, The Beirut Protocol, online. And thank you for staying up late. It's, what, 529 a.m. in Israel. So thank you for that. And uh, you sound very refreshed, so you must have some really good coffee there. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's
2: do it again. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Joel Rosenberg uh, joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. Super cool. You know, I saw this one story about estate planning for musicians with giant catalogs that they own, like Bob Dylan, for example, signed it all away. So there was a, a, an article about it, about estate planning in the sense that if you're a musician like Bob Dylan who passes away, then what happens Is your catalog undervalued? Does that leave your kids and your loved ones now trying to figure things out? She's saying it's a good idea that they're doing this now. So I wanted to talk to her about that. There's a lot of famous rock musicians and things that have recently sold their catalogs. So that's coming up right after the break. Also, a look at your weather on Overnight America KMOX.
0: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious.
1: For Cardinals exhibition preseason play tomorrow, as they take on the Houston Astros. Pre-game 4:55. First pitch
2: 5:05. Hear it here on your voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, KMOX. Welcome to Overnight America. I, I thought that was such a fun interview. Someone person text messaged me. Uh, He has a great Rush Limbaugh impersonation. (laughs) That may be the first time that's ever been texted on the text line. Joining us now is someone that could kind of navigate what is going on with some of these classic rockers, the ones that have these large uh, catalogs that they own, and now they're starting to sell them off. A partner at Piero, Connor, and Strauss, Karen Kepler, thank you for coming on to KMOX.
4: Good evening. It's great to be here.
2: Some of the big names that come to mind, Bob Dylan was the huge one. Um, David Crosby was it the Beach Boys were another one, too. So some of these artists, uh, very well known that had control over their work and their catalog, seemed to be selling them at a time like this. And I'm wondering, how is that good? Tell me what is some of the mindset of why you'd want to consider something like this?
4: Well, first of all, with the pandemic, um, touring, which is a major source of income for these musicians, is pretty much gone. And so they, although they may be seeing some income coming in from their music catalog, it's nothing in comparison to what they were able to produce when touring was an option. So what they've basically done is they're converting their um, They're they're a a stream of income coming from royalties, from the publication and use of their music, and they're converting it into something that's very easy to to envision producing income, basically cash and marketable securities. So, you know, David Crosby made a point of saying that he was interested in doing this months ago before the deal actually was completed, Because he had, if if I'm quoting him correctly, he had a family to support and a mortgage to pay. And Mm -hmm. he has effectively done just that.
2: It's hard to think about that, isn't it? When you hear some of these popular musicians, you think, oh, they're so well off. But they have to make decisions like this when times get tough, just like anyone else.
4: That's absolutely correct. Um, And they're they're doing it also for other reasons. And most of those other reasons are tax driven. You know, everybody is anticipating a potential change in the tax laws with the Biden administration, including a huge increase in capital gains rates. And these assets that David Crosby and Bob Dylan and Stevie Nicks and the Beach Boys have all sold um, are basically capital assets in the form of copyrights which produce royalties so they're mm. potentially saving a huge capital gains tax further down the line should the di- the biden tax proposals actually passed yeah and are signed into law
2: mm. so bob dylan's classic song could be changed to the taxes they are changing uh <laughs> oh, bad dad <laughs> jokes um can't quite help it at some time. Now, my wife would roll her eyes at something like that, but I'm glad that we at least got a chuckle. So, uh, Karen Kepler joining us here on Overnight America. I, I also want to talk about the aspect when it comes to estate planning because some of them are up there in age. You know, David Crosby, Bob Dylan, and others, they've been around a long time. They know they're not going to be here forever, so that might actually help when it comes to doing it now as opposed to later. Because from what I understand, a lot of these times when this happens after the death and it's an asset in that person's you know, uh, estate, it's difficult for the kids to either evaluate it properly or to get the true value out of it.
4: That is absolutely correct. And it also can become a big burden for the family. Um, if you remember correctly, Michael Jackson died 12 years ago or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, his estate is still in litigation with the IRS, which is claiming $170 million plus tax deficiency because of <sighs> his intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing is going on in Prince's estate at the, about $34 million. So the bottom line is this. A marketable security is a very easy thing to value. We can go to the stock market on any given day, and we can pinpoint the price of a stock or a bond or even, you know, gold or silver. But we can't pinpoint the value of the right to receive a royalty or a stream of income from a piece of music. And so it becomes a very, very difficult asset to value. And since when you die, everything in your that you own at the time of your death, including this intellectual property, is an asset that can be taxed as part of your estate, it's they're, what, they're bas- what they've basically done is they've converted a hard-to-value asset into something that's very easy to value and probably saving their heirs a lot of potential headaches as well as potential litigation with the Internal Revenue
2: Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, the executors of those estates, you're right. I remember reading the thing about Prince, and I think one of the big problems they had is that they undervalued it by half or something crazy like that. It was very difficult for them to uh, go back and look at that. And the Michael Jackson thing, probably the first time I realized that you can actually own someone else's music. I didn't realize there was a whole rights issue to this is back with the Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney deal back in the nineties. And everyone was shocked to find out that Paul McCartney didn't own his own music. You know, when the Beatles (laughs) catalog and everything else that came to it. So when, when this stuff gets traded along, it's a, you know, it's an asset. It's a, it's a commodity in some ways. And a lot of these artists are starting to sell. And the more I look at some of these names, uh, Bob Dylan, Mick Fleetwood, Neil Young, uh, the Beach Boys, David Crosby, to name a few, they don't have to sell the whole thing off. Sometimes they sell them partially, which could still cause some problems, but at least it's, a, I guess, a step in the right direction.
4: Oh, well, that's absolutely correct. And interestingly enough, what happened with Michael Jackson is is a really good example of what, could go wrong with with that type of valuation. If you remember correctly, Michael Jackson was not in a very good public opinion at the time that he died. And therefore his executors valued his intellectual property, not just his music catalog and the Beatles catalog, but also his image at a very, very low asset value. And the IRS basically came in you know, months after Jackson's death, because that tax return wasn't due until nine months after he died, or 15 15 months later with an automatic extension, and they looked at the income stream that basically came in after Jackson's death, which it's not really clear they're entitled to do, Mm. Um, and that's why they came up with such a huge value for those assets,
2: Mm. You're a partner at Pure O'Connor and Strauss, uh, Karen Kepler joining us here. And I know we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in some of these cases when it comes to large music catalogs that are very valuable. A lot of times you find this, I guess, on a personal level. And I know there's people listening to this that may say, well, I got a parent who their only real asset might be their house. Uh, they might own some real estate. They probably don't own a lot of things or whatever. So when it comes time to like personal planning, what are some of those things that you would encourage people to do if they haven't already done it?
4: I would first of all encourage them to see an expert. Um, you know you don't go to your orthopedist if you have an if you're having a heart attack, and we say the same thing in law if you don't go to your real estate attorney to take care of planning your estate because that's a completely different field of law and a completely different specialty, so you should be seeing somebody who understands um, the the estate tax laws, as well as the uh, at how they are affected in state by state under property laws, corporate law, et cetera. Um, and that is the most important thing. Get your estate in order and do it with an expert.
2: Okay, Everybody that's good to know. Different. In trying to uh, make sure it's done properly, like even Larry King, I read that I think he had a will, but then they found like a handwritten thing that was a year ago. So now the kids and the wife are fighting. This stuff happens like all the time. So I know that people could change their last will and testament and their wishes. And sometimes they keep it secret, sometimes they don't. But probably writing something down on a piece of paper and shoving it between the couch cushions is not a good idea.
4: No, it is not a good idea. Um, yeah, in, in all my years of practice, the estates that i found end up in the courts in litigation are the ones where people take things into their own hands, write something down on a piece of paper, and shove it under the couch cushions. Uh-huh. So um, it, 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 and, and also, the the wills and the estates that are planned by people who are not not properly trained estate planners. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's seeing an expert is the way to do it.
2: Yeah. Now, if you're someone like just generally speaking, if someone's listening and there, they have a property, a house, maybe they own it. They might own some land or whatever it is. And they say to themselves, oh, my kids will figure it out. You know, they're they're good kids. They've always gotten along. They'll they'll just they'll figure it out. I don't have to worry about this sort of thing. Would you advise still for that person to go and try to at least put into writing? So there is some guidelines of your wishes
4: absolutely and you know money is always the great divider among families i mean you know so even if it's just your house and your ira um and you know and and even your dog um, you you have to worry about that it's going where you want it to go, because this is your basically your last wishes in life. And you don't want your kids to be arguing over what's going to be inherited or even who is going to control the administration of the estate. You should be yeah, picking the people that you think will do be doing the best job for you and and identifying the people where you, you want who to whom you want property to go.
2: Right. And I don't know how much of this you deal with on the day to day, but if you ever had someone come to you and say, I want to leave a million dollars for my cats.
4: Absolutely. You have. And it's possible. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's possible. Um, you know, I practice in New York um, where we have um, a statutes that allow people to, to create a, what is called a pet trust. And I, you know, Most states at this point actually do have that kind of legislation. So you can actually put money in a trust to care for your pet and designate somebody in control of that money. Um, There are limitations on what you can do um, in New York. Um, The courts have the right actually to decrease the amount being held for a pet if they think it's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But... um, but it's basically you're making sure that your pet, which is based, which is a integral part of your family, is being cared for by the people that you want them to be, that they, you want to care for them and that they don't end up in a shelter or in, you know, unwanted somewhere.
2: OK, have you ever let me I'm going to take this even further. So let's say you have someone that comes to you and says, I want to leave a million dollars for my cat when the kids come forward and say, no way mom really wanted that or no way dad really wanted that is, have you ever had a kid look at this after the fact and say, no, I agree. That's fine. Or is it always contested?
4: No, it, it, it depends. I mean, the, the big case <laughs> in New York was the, with this, um, was, uh, years ago with a real estate mogul, uh, Leona Helmsley where she left millions yeah. in trust for right. her, her dog trouble and, mm. uh, of, Great name for a dog in these circumstances. (laughs) But, um, but, yeah, the court actually did reduce the amount. But the thing thing about Leona Helmsley was, to a large extent, um, her money was not necessarily going to her family. But, yeah, um, there are instances where I've seen kids um, have objected to an amount of money being held for a pet. But I also have seen families where that's not the case and where they accept their parents' wishes and they take care of it the way they are, because, you know, the way their parents wanted to, because that pet is a part of the family.
2: It's like on Magnum P.I. from the 80s, where you had him go into the house and he was supposed to be like looking after the house and things and no one really knew who the person who was paying for all of this was you know one of the big questions the mysteries of that tv show It's kind of like that with the cat you know they don't understand what's going on they probably don't understand all of this is taken care of but it might be nice to be along for the ride in that million dollar property or whatever just a only thing in the world you have to do is take care of an animal doesn't seem like a bad job so uh by the way if people had more questions on this or maybe they want to look more into it is there a place they can go or maybe a website they can go to to uh, learn more
4: Absolutely. Um we have a great website it's pierolaw.com, p i e r r o l a w. Um and there's lots of uh articles and webinars and uh, radio broadcasts that people can, <laughs> can 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 listen to uh there's a blog and there's a lot they can learn about estate planning, about long-term care planning, um, about special needs planning, and even about pet trust, uh on the website.
2: <laughs> Pierolaw.com. They can find it, P-I-E-R-R-O. Uh, Piero Connor, and Strauss, a partner. Uh, Karen Kepler, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this tonight on KMOX.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Ryan.
2: And she joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. See, I don't know if I'll be one of those people that leave money to the dog. I would just hope that the kids would take the dog. <laughs> They would love the dog enough. I I, I don't think I'd write that in my last will and testament. And all of my estate and fortune goes to, or lack of fortune goes to, the good old puppy. Daily belly rubs necessary in order to get any money. I'll make sure to put that in for my kids. Oh, yeah. Okay. Producer Mike actually might be on that list too. So maybe I'll just gift my dog to Producer Mike with just a little bit of money on the side to take care of it. Some kibbles and bones and things i will uh, be oh, right back after the break. It's Overnight America, KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored
1: by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michaelsflooringoutlet.com on KMOX.
2: Well, it was fun to learn that that's a real thing, apparently, where people leave way too much money for their pets. Totally unnecessary to leave a million bucks, but still people do it. I wanted to point out a few things about what it's like getting old and the things that have changed in my life. So producer Mike during the break was asking me, what are you doing over the weekend? And I said, well, I'm actually gonna go out and buy some new toilet seats. I'm pretty excited to change out the ones in our house. That's something a younger me never would have said. (laughs) So it's so funny. You think about the way you spend money anymore as an adult. And one of the first things I thought of was, wow, I can go to Home Depot now that we got this tax refund or whatever. And what do I need? Well, I guess I could buy new toilet seats. They're, They're about due. And that's the type of thing that gets me excited is the idea of going to Home Depot and buying things like new toilet seats for the house. Uh, That's really the true sign of getting older. Or, Or I can give you an example of the sign of getting older and how things have changed in my life. I have this thing called dad hands. And I bring it up with my son. Whenever he has something that's stuck or whatever, he brings it to me. Hey, can you pull these two Legos apart? Or can you open this up or do this or that? I said, okay, I got dad hands, so I can do this sort of thing. So he gives it to me and I go, Arr! I make it look like I'm struggling really hard. and pop it open. And all of a sudden, I'm the strongest man in the world. I just impressed a six-year-old that I can do something. My wife calls me up. She's making dinner. And she says that she can't open up the pasta jar. It's stuck. So I go up there with my dad hands thinking, I'm going to be able to pop this thing off. Like I have a million times in the past. I've never had an issue with it. I can do this. And I get up there and uh, couldn't do it. Immediately, I start to wonder, is it because I'm getting older and weaker? Is it just that this is totally a difficult scenario for me anymore? Am I going to just for the rest of my life, never be able to open up another jar? So I go into the drawer and I grab one of those little grippy things that we use. And I thought, okay, maybe if I get a better grip on this, I can open it. And there we go again. Doesn't pop. And I said, I got to start working smarter. And I went to the garage, got the vice grips, came back in, made it look like I was going to work on some plumbing or whatever. And I put these vice grips right onto the pasta can, popped right open pasta jar, I should say. So now I think I'm going to have to buy some vice grips and keep them in the kitchen right there in that drawer. Next time I go to Home Depot this weekend or Lowe's or wherever we end up going to, to get toilet seats. And it makes for a good story. I think if anything, I'm getting wiser because in the past I would have just struggled with that for a half hour, taken a break, probably have taken a nap, came back to it and tried to tackle it again, (laughs) maybe left it for the morning. Sorry, honey, that jar, we're going to have to battle this thing later. Uh, I'm going eight rounds with this bad boy, and it's uh, winning so far, but I'm not letting that happen. It would have been more of a pride thing to say we're not allowing this. So that's what my weekend is going to be all about. Toilet And seats now in. another moment of Ryan Recker <laughs> getting old. <laughs> I forgot we had that. Coming up after the break, this is actually a great interview with an author and historian, a new book called Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, a monkey's head, a Pope's neuroscientist, in the quest to transplant the soul. If you transplant a head, do you transplant the soul? with it is the question. It goes back to the Cold War and and actually looks at some experimentation with monkeys. An author of that book, Dr. Brandy Scalache, joins us right after the break. You're going to love this. It's on Overnight America, KMOX.